Um, as I think about kids, uh, especially, um, and my own children, it occurs to me this morning uh, there is something happening which is a, um, let, let's say, a, uh, a frequent event uh, for those of us um, who preach from God's Word regularly. Uh, and it occurs to me um, that if I am to be teaching people and challenging people and exhorting you from God's Word, and maybe even saying, here's what we ought to be doing, here's what it is like to reflect the image of God, uh, it will, on occasion, if not very frequently, make me a hypocrite. And this morning is one of those days when uh, I, I just want everyone to know uh, I'm well aware of, of my own hypocrisy this morning and how I am first and foremost preaching to myself today, um, and so you just get to be a part of that, um, and, uh, and so let, I'll, I'll just uh, uh, preface the sermon with that short disclaimer. Um, as we go through the book of Hebrews, uh, Mike is correct, we are at our penultimate chapter this morning. We're going to be looking at chapter 12, picking up where we left off uh, last week, and then looking towards uh, the conclusion with chapter 13 next week. Um, I want to begin, as I have uh, through this series, and I hope to, be, uh, uh, to make it a, a, a regular habit, to read through the passage in its entirety, um, and this is chapter 12, not quite as long as chapter 11, mercifully, and if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, we will be reading all 29 verses. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness, gloom and a tempest, and a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word, for this gift of revelation, for this um, glimpse into who you are, your character, your love and your plan to redeem mankind to yourself through your son, Jesus. God, I pray we this morning would be diligent to dig in and get to know you, that we would draw close to you, that we would experience this communion and this life that you offer us, and that it would all be for your glory, and so that the name of Jesus is lifted high in this place. We pray it all in his name. Amen. If I had to ask you, what was the biggest trouble you ever got in? As a kid, or maybe some of you are still living at home and still subject to mom and dad's discipline and consequences, I want you to think of a time when you really got in trouble. And then, (laughs) some of you are chuckling, this is good. There's going to be stories later, I can feel it. And then I want you to to think and ponder this question, did you deserve it? Did you deserve the consequence that you received for your error or your misbehavior? (laughs) It's fair. 
And then I want you to imagine a world where that didn't happen. I want you to imagine what if you had not received that consequence, that correction, that discipline? How would that have affected you later on? You know, I was um, reading through the passage this week, and uh, I yesterday spent some time with with uh, my older two boys and was reading this part of the passage, especially as it relates to fathers disciplining their sons. And I was just like, listen, guys, it's going to be real hard for you to avoid being an illustration this week. And they were like, yeah, we get it. Um, And I asked them, uh, you know, do you think you'll ever look back on the consequences and the discipline that you've received from me and be grateful for it? And one of them said, maybe. And the other said, nope. (laughs) I'll let you take a guess who was who there, but um, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. You know, as, as we go through discipline and we experience discipline, depending on which side of it we're on and our view of it, and what it does to us. And, and what I hope that we see through Hebrews 12 and specifically through this example of parental discipline, I want you to get this morning that Jesus is preparing us for heaven. Jesus is preparing us for heaven. And maybe you think of, of uh, in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, there's this moment where Jesus is with his disciples and he says, I am going to leave you, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And and Thomas even says, but how do we get there? We don't know the way. And then Jesus turns and he says to Thomas, you do know the way. I am the way. I'm preparing this place for you, and I am the way. If you follow me, you will come there. And not only is Jesus preparing a place for us, as we see here in Hebrews chapter 12, He is preparing us for that place as well. And that is at the heart of the discipline and the consequences that we experience here in this life. Now, you'll recall that we are in the so what portion of Hebrews now. If you're looking at Hebrews like it is a sermon, There is a lot of theology, there is a lot of biblical examples, a lot of Old Testament references that sort of build towards this practical exhortation. And we saw that a couple weeks ago as we looked at chapter 10, where there is this turn to a, okay, therefore what? What am I trying to get you to do or not do or stop doing or whatever it is? What is it that is our practical application, the so what? Namely, the author is convincing his or her audience, whatever you do, don't turn away from Jesus. And the reason that he has to do this is because during this time, there is intense persecution, and this group of Jewish believers, we think that they're very educated and very well off, um, but they are scattered all around the Roman Empire, and this is uh, just after some really intense persecution. And in fact, there is this group of people, a group of Pharisees called the Judaizers, among others, who are trying to convince people like the audience of the letter to the Hebrews that no, you, you don't want to cling to Jesus. Come back to the old ways. Come back to your Jewish faith. 
Come back to your old, old covenant, Old Testament, Hebrew, Jewish tradition. And what he's saying is, we have to have endurance. We need to be able to have faith and endurance in order to go through that temptation and still cling to Jesus. And he first used this example of of, uh, Old Testament saints and saying, look at their example. And that's what we talked about last week in chapter 11. Look at the example of all of these people who still endured because they had faith. And we just hinted at last week when we broke into chapter 12, where he's now saying, and more importantly, look to Jesus for endurance. Look to Jesus as this example of endurance. And it builds into this bigger, broader idea throughout the book of Hebrews, this main point that the author is trying to make, that Jesus is better than anyone or anything we could ever possibly worship. Now, the author begins by kind of addressing what it is that we are doing. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It is this call towards endurance. And the author uses two different kind of metaphors throughout this time, using uh, parenting and sports. We see the sports and the, the athletic language all throughout here, even beginning with this idea of running the race. And then turns to this idea of parenting, and it, and, and it is all towards looking at Jesus as this example of endurance. And we see that in verse 4, you know, where he said, like, look, at, look at what Jesus put up with. Look at all of the sin that Jesus managed to, to, to uh, let, set aside and fight off the temptation of. In fact, even to the point of death on a cross. And if you look at verse 4, he says, in your struggle against sin, have you, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I don't know if that's exactly an uplifting message. Um, that's, that's, by the way, if ever any of you come to any of us pastors for counseling, that's our first response. Hey, at least you're not bleeding, right? Um, it's biblical. Look at Hebrews 12. Um, you know, you haven't yet even got to this point where Jesus was resisting like this. And yet, what does this look like? What is it that we are trying to do as we set aside sin? And what does that mean to set aside or resist the temptation of sin that clings so closely? And I want to talk in a little bit about what that means and, and, and why sin is such an issue. But let's look first at this idea of parenting. And as I read through Scripture... Um, you know, the, the, the method of hermeneutics that I use starts with observation. As I'm going through and, and just listing observations, I am looking for six things. I'm looking for things that are emphasized, looking for things that are repeated, looking for things that are related, looking for things that are similar, looking for things that are different. And finally, I'm looking for things that are true to life. When I read through scripture, I look for things that make me go, oh, I know what that's like. I feel that. And so I come to a passage that talks about fathers disciplining sons, and I'm going, I have some experience here. I have lived this. I have felt this. 
And I understand what the author is saying, that when we discipline our children, it is not because we don't like them. It is not because they are bad and it's ticking me off and they're falling short of the perfection that I demand. When we discipline our children, it's because we love them. Parents have a responsibility to discipline their children because they love them. And I, I love my sons. And because I love my sons, I discipline them quite often, maybe more often than I would like to. And yet you can see discipline is a tough and difficult and sometimes frustrating experience. And that's why there are many people that just like, you know what, forget it. We'll let this one slide. But when we let misbehavior slide, that's not really loving to our children. In fact, the most loving thing that we can do is correct them. And when I'm cross with them because they're arguing or whining or interrupting or running off into the street, as one of my sons is very wont to do, uh, or they're being rowdy, they're playing around. After, you will, by the way, if you've not met my sons, you can pick them out. They're the ones tackling each other after the service. They will be downstairs strangling one another, and there is nary a week that I don't have to come down and, you know, like, you shut up. I have to go talk to people about Jesus' love. You know, like, I, it's a weird... <laughs> It's a weird tension that I feel all the time, especially on a Sunday morning, but I do not do that because it irritates me, even though it absolutely does. I correct my children because that is what is loving to them. I'm trying to teach them how to live. I'm trying to teach them how to get the best out of life when they grow up. Because if they run out into traffic, they will get hurt. Because if they interrupt, they are going to hurt relationships. Because if they whine, no one is ever going to give them responsibility that will help to develop them. If my sons are cheating in a game, which they absolutely do, and I correct them, maybe their consequence is that they don't get to play that game anymore, or they lose a treat, or they have to go to bed early. If they grow up and they cheat on their taxes or other parts of the law, the consequences are much more severe. The stakes are higher. So I have to teach them these things now while the stakes are lower. If they argue with me, if they whine and they throw a fit, they have consequences. Maybe they don't get to do movie night. They, maybe they, they don't get to have story time. Maybe they, they lose something that they love, like a stuffed animal. If when they grow up, they do that same thing to a boss or a college professor or a law enforcement officer, the consequences are so much higher. And if I did not teach them how to respond and how to behave, if I did not discipline them, if I did not correct them, they would be worse off later in life. This is what God is doing when he disciplines us. As we go through life 
And as we struggle with laying aside sin, it is not because God is mad at you. It is not because you are irritating him. It is not because he has some rubric and he's going, missed that one, missed that one, docked there, D minus, F, whatever. It's because he is trying to prepare us for life with him. He is trying to prepare us for something so much better and greater. Jesus is preparing us for heaven. He is preparing us in this way. And listen, far too often, people, and, and I, I have been guilty of this too, we approach the Bible like it is a big book of rules. We approach the Bible like it is primarily an ethics book. It is not. Yes, the Bible has things to say about the best way to live, but it is primarily a book about who God our Father is. It is a book about his character, his great love for us, and his plan to redeem us to himself through his son Jesus. And when he corrects us, it is not because he is mad at us. It's because he is trying to get us to see there is a better way to live and I'm preparing you for the absolute best life ever. And the truth of the Christian life is not the hope of a better life in heaven someday. It's the joy of abundant life in Jesus now. Here and now, Jesus is inviting us to live in a way that is more like God, to live in a way that's on a higher, elevated plane that says, the further you stray from God's teaching, the further you are straying from life itself. And I want you to be corrected, not so that it, you know, I look better in front of my friends as I so often do, you know, when I discipline my children. Or not, not so that, you know, you can get a perfect score. It's because this way you can be closer to me, to life. You know, in, in the Greek, the word that's used here for sin literally means off the mark or missing the mark. And I imagine many of you have heard that before. And I grew up in a faith tradition that often taught this because the word is the same as used in athletics and in sports where, you know, you think of a target, archery or darts or something like that. And I grew up in a faith tradition that taught this in a way that said, God demands perfection and anything, even a little bit off the center, that's imperfect and that's sin. That's a mark against you. That's disobedience and that's out, outright, you know, just hostility towards God. And the truth is, the mark is not God's rubric. The mark that we are aiming for is not God's report card. It is not his list of rules. The mark that we are aiming for is God himself. It is our loving, caring, compassionate Father who says, I have life to give you. And the further away that you stray from me, the more you don't get to experience this wonderful, rich, profound, abundant life that I offer here and now through Jesus. Jesus is preparing us for heaven. And even in the ways he describes 
earthly parenting, if you look at like verses 9 and 10, he acknowledges parents do it the best we can for a little while. And I, listen, my kids are 8, 7, 4, and 2. It feels like I have been parenting for the last 25 years, and it feels like it'll be another 50 before they're out of my house. But those of you that are on the other side of it know, no, it's way faster than that. It goes way quicker than that. And they're only ours for a little while. And we do the best that we can. And I have to admit, I fail a lot. I do not always discipline my children well. I discipline out of anger. I discipline out of frustration. I discipline out of convenience for me. I discipline out of my own pride and self-consciousness because I don't want other people to see that my children run and yell and kick things. Oh no, of course, seven and eight-year-old boys do that. And so here and now I have to acknowledge where this might be a difficult analogy for many of you. Because we don't all have good earthly fathers. We don't all have a good relationship with our earthly fathers. And I recognize that for many of you, seeing God as your father is a really hard and hurtful thing. I recognize that many people in this room have experienced abuse, have experienced absent fathers, have experienced fathers who neglected them, have experienced fathers that were aloof and far off and didn't want to do the hard work of discipline. And even those that have great relationships with their fathers, and I thank God for the father that I was given. I didn't choose mine, you didn't choose yours. None of us have, you know, doesn't make any of us better or worse than anyone else. But even in ways that I recognize, you know what? Dad didn't always get it right, and that's okay. And I'm not always getting it right, and that's okay. I need to learn to have some grace and forgiveness with myself. But I recognize that this might be a wound for many people. And even as the author acknowledges, don't put all of your baggage and trauma necessarily onto God the Father, because he does this perfectly. He cares for us and he disciplines us perfectly. And even giving these examples that he does, you know, we, we look at, um, I, I, I've done this, I've, I'm, I'm off on tangents and I'm running out of time and I need to skip ahead and I, I'm sorry, but you know, I, I look at some of these specific things that he says and the ways that he disciplines us. In verse 14, where he says, you need to strive for peace with everyone. We talked last week about how radical faith in something greater is, that it causes us to seek reconciliation with other people. And that's what the author is talking about, striving for peace. It says striving, not achieving, but as best we can to do the work of reconciliation. Why? Because Jesus is preparing us for heaven. Because Jesus is calling us to live in a way that says, you are not like the world around you. 
You are not like the cultural values that say, whatever you do, get ahead, even if it's at somebody else's expense. Value people only insofar as they give you something. You get something out of it. If someone has hurt you, get revenge, get them back, and if they get their just desserts, yes, it's a win. He's saying no. God is calling us to live in an elevated plane, to live in a place that is already a taste of heaven, where we live together in harmony, in peace. What an incredible thing. And maybe that's a conviction to you. Maybe that's something that you're going, yeah, I do need to be disciplined in this area. Maybe God is preparing me for heaven in this way. Talks about sexual immorality. And I, I have to say, look, this, the Bible is written in a time, in a place, in a different context, in a different language far away, and sometimes it's very difficult to apply it. And so just, just to let everyone know, this is written at a time where in the Roman Empire, sex was just really a huge problem and a huge idol. I know that, that it doesn't always apply to modern 21st century culture, but we'll just use our imaginations, I suppose. But in this time when... People viewed sex as this transactional thing. Sex is for my pleasure, and I will use people in any way so that I get some instant gratification. And in fact, that is kind of the theme of these, um, these warnings, these, these chastisements that the author is saying. Don't trade something eternal for something temporary. That is why he brings up Esau. Esau, who traded his birthright for a bowl of soup <laughs> because the next day he was hungry. <laughs> because the next day he was going, I have lost out on my inheritance forever and I want it back. Don't trade something eternal for something that will only fill you temporarily, shallowly. It will not ultimately satisfy you. Jesus is preparing us for heaven, and preparing us for heaven means laying aside our fleeting impulses and focusing instead on something eternal. Where he talks about a, a root of bitterness. Look, our impulses are not always bad. Our feelings, our, our emotions are not always bad. And when you feel anger, quite often it is justified, it is good, it is righteous. There are things in this world that ought to make you angry. There are things going on in the world that are not just. There are things going on, and if someone tries to hurt my children, I am angry about it, and I should be. But when we hold on to anger for the sake of anger, it turns to bitterness. Anger is only good insofar as it moves us to action. Anger is only good insofar as it moves us to be agents of justice, to enact a world that is better off than it was before, as God is doing even as we look at in this passage. Jesus is preparing us for heaven, and sometimes that means letting go of some of the things that we are holding on to way too much. And maybe you're tracking along with uh, discipline and fathers, and even if you don't have children, all of us are or were at one time children and probably were recipients of discipline, and you're reading along and you're like, I understand this, I get it, okay, that makes sense. Maybe you got to 
verses 18 through 20, and you're like, okay, blazing fire, trumpet, tempest, animals can't touch, the animals are still, what's going on, huh? And it's confusing, and we're not sure what's going on. And maybe if your Bible, like mine, has a footnote or maybe somewhere a cross-reference in the margins, it points you towards Exodus 19, and it helps you go, oh, yeah. The original audience didn't have that. They didn't have a crossway publisher's footnote. But they were very well-versed in the Old Testament. They knew, and the author, as he does so often, makes this reference and, and assumes the audience understands, assumes the audience gets the reference that he is making. And what happens in Exodus 19, this is before they have set up the tabernacle. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago. They're, they've come across and crossed the Red Sea. They're wandering in the desert. And God wants to meet with his people. And Moses goes up on the mountain and meets with God. And there is this sense of like, this is a holy thing. There's a storm, there's trumpets, there's fire. There's don't even go up near the, you know what? Don't touch the mountain at all. Because if you do, you'll die. Remember when we talked about the tabernacle as something that was meant to be sort of gate-kept. It was meant to keep people out so that it could remain holy and unblemished and set apart and free from sin. And it's this same idea where in the Old Testament, when Moses goes up and he does this, he comes down after having talked face-to-face -face with God and his face was glowing and it freaked people out. And they're like, can you put something on, bro? Like, come on. And they did not care for that. They didn't want to meet God in that way. And in fact, as they talk about it, it's like, okay, so does anybody else want to do that? And they're like, Moses, you know what? If you want to keep doing that, that's great. Why don't you talk to God on our behalf, please? Just let us know what he said. What the author is saying is, is that the system you want to go back to? Is that the mountain that these Judaizers are saying is better? Is that how you want to encounter God on Mount Sinai? No, instead, as we turn to verse 22, he says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. You have come to a new covenant, a better covenant, a better way of interacting with God, of seeing God face to face, because that's who Jesus is. We can interact with him. We can receive instruction directly from him. And it is so much better. We don't need to come to this mountain fearful of God, worried that we're going to do something wrong and that we'll accidentally touch something we couldn't and die. No, you get to come to this place where it's a festal gathering. Think of a big holiday festival. Um, it's the same word that they use for Olympics. Like, think about this woohoo party that you get to come to and say, we get to live like this, not just someday, here and now. Jesus is preparing us for heaven in all that we see and do in all the ways that we are following Jesus, especially in the ways that are hard and difficult and frustrating at times, it is because he is preparing us to live in a world that is not like this one. I think it was Lewis that said, if I look around all of the world and I still cannot find a, a place that I fit in, I must assume that I was made not for this world. That is you and me, folks.
Jesus is preparing us for the place that was made for us. He is preparing us for heaven. And even there is this kind of strange duality to this heaven, to this place that he is preparing. And as we read through and the chapter ends with this like, our God is a consuming fire, what's happening? You remember a few weeks ago when we talked about God coming and setting everything right and a day of judgment is a two-sided coin depending on whether or not you are for God or against him. There is a day coming when God will set everything right and it will be good news for some and very bad news for others. That, that is what Jesus is saying. He's like, listen, I want you to start living like this now, not because it's, you know, it's gonna mark you off on your report card later, but because this is the best way to live. Because here is where life is found. Way too often, we think of sin as this sort of fun thing that we, we have to reluctantly say no to because we have to live holier than thou, and that sure looks fun, but no, I have to live this way. No! Why is it that we think the person that lives this lascivious lifestyle, that, you know, of freedom and, and uh, you know, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and booze, and every impulse that they have, and, and sin, and whatever else, and then they, they accept Christ right on their deathbed, and they still get to go to, oh, that's the dream. No! There are people in here who have come to Christ and become followers of Christ late in life, and I promise, go and talk to them. Ask them if they wish they had started following Jesus earlier. Ask them if they wish they had been living like this, close to the source of life, sooner. Ask them if they feel like those years were just one bad decision after another, and here now in following Jesus, is life because Jesus is preparing us for heaven. Well, so what? <laughs> what is it that we need to do because Jesus is preparing us, he is discipling us, disciplining us, preparing us for heaven? There's a few thoughts that I have that I, I want to share with you and some of them are, are you know, these are not all going to be applicable to everyone. But the first thing that I think about is the way that we discipline our children tells them something about God. Those of you that have kids in the home, whether they are young or grown, maybe some of you are in a, a, a parental or guiding role with grandkids or other family members or even some other child in your life. The way that you discipline that child affects their view of God. The way that you show them correction and rebuke trains them to see their father that way. And I gotta tell you, this is super convicting for me. This makes me go into parenting with a different mindset. It makes me need to be sober-minded about the way that I approach disciplining my children because it will affect their view of who God is. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe your kids are grown. We can still look at this and it should affect our response to discipline. Our response to correction and rebuke should be joy and gratitude. When there are things happening in our life that are making us more like Christ, we ought to praise him 
We ought to say, thank you, God. Thank you for making me more patient. Thank you for making me more loving. Thank you for making me more joyful, even though it's painful. Remember, nobody thinks it's great at the time. Discipline in the moment is painful. You ever read something in the Bible and go, yeah, duh. It should change our perspective on when we are going through hard things and asking God, what is it that you are doing in me to prepare me for heaven? What is it that you are doing in me here and now that is preparing me to live with God, my Father, my Creator, forever? And, and finally, it needs to affect our view of sin. It needs to change our perspective of sin. Not as something that's irritating or ticking God's off, God off. But sin is just something that pulls us further away from God. Sin pulls us away from the source of abundant life. We should view sin not as this little, you know, like a cheat day when we're on a diet. Oh, that queso tastes so good, but I know I shouldn't do it. No, we should see it as something that is just not the best way to live. Like choosing a bowl of soup over an inheritance. Like giving in to something temporary and forsaking something that will last forever. Because sin is not this thing that incurs God's wrath. Sin, God's wrath is, is coming to cleanse us of our sin. And if we're clinging to that sin, we're going to be in its path. God is not mad at us. God is not mad at you. God loves you, and he wants to have a relationship with you. And he is saying through his son, Jesus, this is how I want you to live, because this is how you stay close to me, because this is life. When I, when I tell my son off for darting out into traffic, I get very stern with him because that is where he is going to get hurt. And I say, I, I need you to stay close to me, bud, because that's where I love for you to be. That's where it's safe. That's where I can show you love and affection and how to live. And that's what God is doing to us when Jesus is teaching us to get, get rid of this sin that clings to us so closely because Jesus is preparing us for heaven. God, we thank you for all of the ways that you are correcting us and rebuking us and disciplining us. God, we know your word tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And God, we believe that, we claim that, we celebrate that. But God, we know that even though we are free from the condemnation of sin, we are still subject to the consequences of our sins. And I pray that even as we experience those consequences, those hard things, I pray that we would respond in joy, in gratitude, and worship in a way that says, God, we trust that you are teaching us how to live in a way that is more like you, that you are preparing us for something greater in heaven. We pray that we would remember that this week, that we would live like it, and that we would interact with others in a way that proclaims this truth. We pray it all in the name of Christ. Amen.